0: everyone and welcome to another episode of Bible Ask Live where we answer your Bible questions live here on our weekly show. My name is Tina with my friends Jane Wendy. Good to see you guys again. How are y'all doing? Hello. Hello, great to see you. Oh, Good to see you guys. I'm so happy that we get to enjoy this time together in God's word opening the Bible and answering these awesome questions we've got in. Thank you everybody who's joining us out there. We just wanna welcome you. If this is your first time, welcome. We hope you enjoy our show. And if you're a returning viewer, thank you for joining us again. And just reminding everybody that if you have comments or questions, put them down below in the comment section. We are live, so we like interacting with our audience. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so again, yeah, if you have thoughts, questions, anything you wanna share, we are happy to interact with you all, our live audience. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. And we have quite a few questions, so I know we need to dive into them pretty quick. So, but before we do, we just want to um, start us off with a word of prayer. So Wendy or Jay, would you mind praying for us?
1: Let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this week you brought you brought us through. Thank you for um, each and every person who submitted a question and for the amazing truths that we pray you'll help draw out. We pray your spirit will guide us all into truth, into your love, and closer to you. And this we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you so much. Wendy, are you ready for our first question? Yes.
2: Let's go ahead and get that up. All right. So Jenny is asking, why does Luke say, a, say about Mary, she is full of grace, the favored one, when you say she was just a vessel? Okay, Ke Carato Mini.
1: Great. Thank you, Jenny. I really appreciate this question and the opportunity to dive even deeper on the issue of Mary. We discussed her a couple of weeks ago, and we especially focus on the part about Hail Mary and um, you know why we don't think that means Mary should be venerated the way she does by people, especially of the Catholic tradition. Um, but um, you or Jenny is now asking about what about the words full of grace? So let's dive into that and this one we're going to go a bit into especially greek and we're going to get a little technical um she specifically brought up a greek word Keketor- Keketor- <laughs> Ah, keke <I'm bumbling laughs> um you'll see why we're using powerpoint um this is the exact reason why um so let's dive in let's uh put up the powerpoint and go through this so um so she asked why does mary what, do, what does Luke say about Mary? Uh, she is full of grace, the favored one, when you say she is just a vessel. Uh, great question. Um, where does full of grace come from? So we see this. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us, Jesus, now and at the hour of death. Amen. Where does this come from? Where do we see this in the Bible? The answer is, it's not from the Bible. This is the Hail Mary. And, and I should clarify that some elements of this are biblical. They are from Luke, and we're going to look at that. But this part here, specifically the full of grace, it's a bit debatable whether that specifically is uh, in the Bible. Um, you will find this, the full of grace, not in any, uh, any English versions. Uh, but you will see it if you look at the latin vulgate and the syriac bibles but again like the major versions of the english you're never going to see this in it what are we going to see instead so this is luke one twenty-eight. this is what the the hill mary is based on uh at least in, in large part and it reads and having come in the angel said to her rejoiced Highly favored one, the Lord is with you, blessed are you amongst women. So we don't say full of grace, we see highly favored one. And the highly favored one there is that Greek word we were fumbling over earlier, which is breaking it out kakare to many. I'm not even pronouncing it right, I realize that. Um, and if we break it down, this is actually a verb that's in the perfect passive participle nominative singular feminine tense. Um, Greek is conjugated very different than uh, than English, and it actually the root word is kakaritaho. Karitaho. And what does that mean? What is the the that word? It means to grace to endue with special honor, make accepted to be highly favored. You can find this uh, from Strong's Definitions in the Blue Letter Bible app. You could also, um, there they have the Theor's Greek lexicon, which clarifies that this word means to make graceful, charming, lovely, agreeable, to pursue with grace, compass with favor, to honor with blessing. And it's important that, you know, as we're looking at this, what does the kakari tomeni mean? It's meaning that some external force is causing someone to be graced. Someone is showing grace to another person. Someone is showing favor, conferring favor. So it's not meaning that Mary from within her, in of herself, has grace. Uh, So don't just take my word for it. Let's quickly go through. I mentioned all the different translations. KJV uses highly favored. LSB, look, use favored one. NASB20, favored one. Uh, The RSV, favored one. NIV, you who are highly favored. HNIV, highly favored one. ASV, thou that art highly favored. ESB, favored woman. ESV, favored one. NET, favored one. The uh, Young's literal translation, favored one. DBY, the thou favorite one. And this is my favorite one, the better better English, Bible in basic English, sorry. Bible in basic English, to whom special grace has been given. I think that really is a good way to summarize what is trying to be conveyed in this verse. So, why? Why is Mary the highly favored one? That's why uh, I think that's sort of the essence of Jenny's question, real good question why why is Luke saying that why why is the angel saying that? Let's look at two verses down now. this is we're now looking at Luke one thirty and Gabriel says, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That word favor is charis, which is actually even the more root word of of uh the other words we were looking at charis and it means grace goodwill loving kindness favor thanks and we we see this throughout the bible when we talk about god's grace god shows grace uh so god has found favor or you have found favor with god god is showing grace to her and the very next verse we get an understanding why or how how is she being favored? Where is this favor coming from? So Luke 131 it says and behold you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. So she is going to have something very very special. Of all the created beings of all time in the whole world, you know, the whole universe, how many will give birth to God? And maybe, like, Tina, Wendy, chime in. Of all the created beings. Only one. Only one. I mean, think about it. This is so profound. Only one created being ever, anywhere, will ever give birth to God. I mean, I'm pretty confident. confident about this. I'm not going to hear about Jesus being regarded, being reincarnated again and again and again. You know, no, he was made flesh one time and only one time, and that was through Mary. What an incredible special honor she had to be the mother of God. So was Mary highly favored by God? I mean absolutely i mean we can't downplay the significance of this but again she was still human she was still like one of us and that's that's still important that's how christ's coming was significant because he also became one of us and yet he's still god yes but it didn't transmute mary into something other than us and and you know jesus was really i think Everybody has been waiting for him through all generations. Jesus is called the desire of all nations. Since Eve, the human race, has been waiting for, for the Messiah to come, the one who will smash the head of the serpent, the the daughter or the, the son of the seed that will come from Eve. So was Mary full of grace? I would say only when Jesus was in the womb, because it wasn't her grace. It wasn't grace in of herself. It was grace of Jesus. Who is full of grace according to the Bible? We see it in John 1:14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Is there any other time in the Bible where we hear a lot of talk about glory, grace, truth? Where do we see these words? Very significant. We see this all the way back in Exodus 34 when God shows himself to to Moses and proclaims his name. And this is what we read Exodus 34 6. And the Lord passed before him and (laughs) proclaimed proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. We see there, look, merciful and gracious that gracious actually is very important that's hanun and this word is only used with respect to god As as a brown driver briggs lexicon says gracious only used as an attribute of god um you know it's not saying that there aren't gracious humans but this is a very special gracious and I mean, we're talking about only God is as merciful as God is like, we are not on par with him whatsoever. And so when we say Jesus is full of grace, I think John is pointing back to here, talking about it, Jesus being merciful and loving and gracious and giving and, and showing favor to people on a level that none of us ever can or ever will. It's a trait of God. Let's look at grace though. Grace is still something that God gives to all of us. It's not, it's not just for so many people have misconceptions of grace, or I should say, a very narrow view of what grace is. Um, you know, grace can be mercy, it can be in a form of God's forgiveness to us. But there's another grace of how God gives a certain types of gifts to us, spiritual gifts. And we read about this in Ephesians 4 7. It says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. You're getting a good idea. It's kind of like a thing that God gives to everybody, potentially. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. We jump ahead a little bit. Um, It says, so Christ himself gave, and I think the, the better way to, in terms of tenses is, has given. He doesn't stop giving. He's still giving the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I love this. We are supposed to be becoming mature spiritually to the point where we are filled with the fullness of Christ. We are full of Christ. And if we think about that, if Christ is full of grace, what will it be like when we are full of Christ? So I I believe we should all be full of Christ. We definitely, and, and when we are, we are going to be full of grace. And it's not grace that's attributable to us. It's not our grace, but we will be full of grace. So just as as Mary can you know give birth to the Messiah, we can have the 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 spirit of God reborn us to make us reborn again. We can it says, bear God within us, and God working through us will fill, fill us with grace, fill us with wisdom. Fill us with knowledge. Fill us with love. Fill us with all these traits that, again, have nothing to do with us. They're external. They're given. They come to us because God's showing special favor to us, just like he shows special favor to Mary. And so this is a critical, important distinction to understand the differences between, uh, let's say, Catholic traditions where Things could be intrinsic within a person. Goodness is within a person and they have special merit that then they can pass on to others. Versus the Protestant view of the Bible is the Bible is teaching us that we have a direct relationship with God. That God is working powerfully within us when we give him the chance. When we have the relationship with him and all the good, all the love, all the wisdom, all those things are going to be attributable to him. We are cooperating. We have a role. Yes. But as Paul talks about, you know, he says, I, I don't have reason to boast, you know, because it's really, it's God working in us. And it should give us hope, because again, we don't have to have anybody between us and God. It means the, these things, the, these attributes come from us having a direct relationship with God. No middle people, no middlemen, no middle women, no Mary, no saints. We go straight to God himself, and God comes straight to us and into us. And this is why it's such a special, special thing that the Bible teaches that I don't think we see in any other religion. This is the power of Christianity and to put division between us and God really denies the power of it. So this is why to me it's a big deal and I'm not against Mary. I think she's an amazing woman and definitely a favorite beyond any other. But the the concept of way she's venerated and put in position that's just not true denies so much power of the gospel. And that's why we protest. So, Tina, Wendy, any thoughts? Um,
0: you know, as far as, you know, the the, the tradition that, you know, Mary is somehow uh, holds divinity within herself. And I understand I have family who's Catholic and I totally respect anybody who's of the Catholic faith and, you know, who ha- holds this position. But, you know, it comes down to do you believe the Bible is true? true or or what will you choose will you choose what the bible says to be true or will you choose a tradition and let me show you one quick verse that i mean i i jay i think everything you're saying is spot on um but just you know to show you one quick verse that really shows you know mary there there is no divinity in and of herself as much as yes she was um favored as far as yeah god favored her that said you know she's going to be my chosen vessel um and she's going to hold the son of God within yeah. her for a period of time. But that doesn't mean that she had any divinity within herself to do that. And if you look at the book of Isaiah, chapter seven, verse 14, this is a, a messianic prophecy. So this is a prophecy that God gave many hundreds of years before Jesus um, came to this earth. And if you look at Isaiah seven fourteen, it says, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and she and shall call his name Emmanuel. So it's just saying a virgin, not the virgin, not, you know, um, the mother of God, not in the Bible never uses the phrase mother of God. It never uses the phrase queen of heaven. It never uses those phrases ever anywhere. It just in pointing to what Mary's job would be, it said a virgin, not some you know any there's no sign of divinity in that at all and so i think that's where it gets a little bit dangerous when we start you know giving um to people you know (laughs) the attributes of divinity because we cannot put our trust in people we have to put our trust only in god and it says um you know and she's going to bring forth emmanuel which is god with us which is jesus christ of course so we need to just put our trust in jesus and the father who sent him and um and just really be careful that we're, again, we're not putting our trust in people um, that really don't have that authority or power. Because um, as much as I respect Mary, I cannot even imagine being, <laughs> being put in her position. She was highly honored and God definitely saw her as a very special vessel for his service. Obviously, um, you know, I have the highest respect for her, but I don't think I think it's very dangerous to go to the point of worship, because that's where um that's God holds very sacred. He says, "I will not share my my glory with another. I will not share my worship with another. God is very specific that He only wants us to worship Him and Him alone. And that's the very first commandment thou shalt have no other gods before me. There is nobody in heaven besides God, period. And so again, as much as I respect Mary and you know this theology, yeah, we have to make we have to point ourselves back to the bible and say what does the bible say not what we feel or what we think or what we're brought up with but rather what does god's word truly say so yeah thank you sorry (laughs) (laughs) i feel passionately about this as well so sorry about that
1: yeah i'm very passionate about it too and it's nothing gets very it's it's the philosophy that's it could be any other person in that position and that shouldn't Mm -hmm. be so
0: exactly and, um, and there's nothing against people yeah. who hold mary you know who who've been raised that way and I, I respect and love all people and, and you know i just pray that we all continue to grow like you're saying in the fullness of christ getting to know god and his word better and as we do i think we're going to be led to all truth so anyways i know yes. i see some comments
1: yeah a facebook user says uh, it has a good comment on point right here
2: yes uh the facebook user says mary called god her savior Mm,
0: that's very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. She herself
2: did not put herself on the same level as God. No, she really didn't.
0: And the thing was, too, like with in Jesus's ministry, there was a time where Jesus even had to rebuke her because she, um, you know, and he even said, like, hey, she's not even my mom. Who's my mother? Those who do, you know, my will. And so um, he was very clear, like, hey, you know, she's, yes, like, in an earthly sense, yes. In a physical sense, but spiritually speaking, no. Spiritually speaking, you know, she, she, you know, was in the wrong at that moment, and she needed correction. And so, um, as much as I know, he did respect his mother. I believe he did you know, obey the Ten Commandments. To you know, um, she, he she was never his you know spiritual mother. She's not. You know, she doesn't hold divinity within herself. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, We got uh, some people Uh, joining us, too. We want to say hello to Francine, a friend joining us. Thank you for being here live with us.
0: Hi, Francine.
1: And uh, Thank you for joining us. And hello to the Facebook users and uh, our friends on YouTube. And if anybody's on Twitch, we thank you for joining us as well.
0: Yes,
2: thank you.
1: I think we're ready for the next question.
2: All right, let's go ahead and get the next question up. So Tiago is asking, hello, is Bible ask linked to Catholic or Protestantism?
1: I think we just answered that one.
2: <laughs> thank you. I think we did. Well, Tiago, thank you
0: so much for your question. And, you know, a lot of people ask Bible ask, you know, what church are you affiliated with or what denomination? And we, or, our answer is always the same. We're, You know, Bible ask is a... A ministry. We are not linked to any church or denomination in any way or any form. Um, so we're not linked to Catholicism or Protestantism. We're linked to the Bible and the Bible only. So um, I hope that answers your question. Um, Bible Ask is all about the Bible and that's it. We All we care about is, you know, answering Bible questions based on the Bible and the Bible only. So, and we're not in any way trying to coerce or <laughs> direct in, um, to any specific denomination or Protestantism or Catholicism, for that matter. So yeah,
1: that's it. So I'd say the 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 concept of sola scriptura, that you know, Bible and Bible alone, is sort of at the heart and core of true Protestantism. But we don't do it because it's Protestantism. No. We do it because, and for us, our core tenet here is the Bible first, and that's our authority.
0: Amen. Exactly. Amen.
2: All right, shall we get our next question? Mm-hmm. So, Robert is asking, what does Proverbs 6:34 mean?
0: Are you on mute, my friend?
2: Uh, I'm just pulling up my notes
1: here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a look at Proverbs 6 32 actually so we're going to start a little further back and then i'll work we'll work our way forward Um, to give a little bit context there's always the best there's a saying it's a text without a context is a pretext it's very important so as you're studying bible always make sure we look uh, ideally at you know the verses before look at the whole chapter before look at the chapter after look at consider the whole book and then also consider just the entire bible together you know, make sure we're reading everything harmoniously. Uh, that's very important for good, uh, good Bible interpretation. So here we're just going to back up a little bit, give us some context. Proverbs six thirty-two, it reads: Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul, wounds and and dishonor he will get, and his reproach pr- will not be wiped away. For jealousy is a husband's fury. So now we're into the verse uh, that Robert was asking about. For jealousy is a husband's fury; therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased, though you may give many gifts. Uh, So it's funny. In in law school, we talked about this often in, in the context of criminal law, where you know you think of someone who see something that just gets them absolutely infuriated, and then they might engage in an act of murder or something like that, and would they be able to get off it, you know, or at least not get first degree? An example would be, you know, for example, um, a father seeing something done to their child, and then, you know, they act in rage as a result. Well, this verse is talking about the same thing, you know, if a husband, his life's in his, 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 wife he loves his wife and then hears about how his wife may have been raped or, or cheated on him he will get absolutely furious right he and feel betrayed uh, in fact you know so if he's cheated on will feel betrayed in jealousy um and in the heat of the moment who knows what he'll do right and so yeah i don't care about the money he doesn't care about getting paid back uh he will um I think he just wished the thing could be undone. He would want the relationship restored. It was about the relationship and the trust, and now that's destroyed and gone. That's what this verse is speaking about. And and then we go to thinking of larger spiritual principles, and this sort of concept, all the time, God is sort of referring to, with regard to his relationship with us, that he can be a very jealous God. He wants the relationship with us. And he gets angry, he gets very hurt when that relationship, that trust is is broken. And so we see this, for example, in Deuteronomy 6.15, where God says, For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Uh, so, you know, so angry, like, I <laughs> might destroy you, right? But... He's also slow to anger. Uh, so God's this sort of dichotomy where he seems to be quick to anger, but it, but really has good reason to be because it's about relationships. He wants to, he expresses this anger and, and this emotion to show us how much he cares. Like this is how much of a big deal it is to him. And he's like, why don't you think it's a big deal to have the relationship with me? And we go to Psalms 78, 58. And, and it reads, For they, they provoked him to anger with their high places, and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. So he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among them. And he delivered his strength into captivity, and his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from a sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies. He put them to a perpetual reproach. So this is important to understand like God... Pulls back and he lets us suffer the consequences of our betrayal on him. And he lets the people we wanted to be with then take advantage of us and we suffer the consequences. And then God, though, at some point says, I'll come back to you. He keeps coming back. He's the one who's ever faithful. And as he says here, you know, second Corinthians eleven two, 2, or this is Paul speaking, it says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. There's a special good jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So God wants earnestly this relationship with us, that we will be with him. We can love him. He loves us. We be transformed. We made, be made in his image. We be his children. Like, no distance between us and him. It's not like God has kids who have kids who have kids who then were their kids. God's saying, like, I'm adopting you directly. You are my kids. Uh, so this is his love for us. And, and the greater the love, the greater the, the jealousy, the greater the anger when the relationship is damaged. And this is all what this verse is getting, be- getting to in Proverbs six thirty four. So thank you for asking, Robert. Tina, Wendy, any thoughts?
2: I'm good. All right, let's get our next question up. So Robert is asking, if someone says the word never, she invited something into her life. For example, someone said, I will never steal from an old man in my life. Is it true that she invited something into her life by saying that?
0: Robert, that's an interesting question and um to that i'll say you know i i think that goes along with a lot of um theories out there that you know people are saying you know if you do things you know the universe will send things back to you and kind of like this this thought of like you know whatever vibrations or things you send out you know you're kind of getting these things back and you're inviting things into your life and i think that's a little bit superstitious um but i do think there is a biblical concept as far as you know not ever not saying like never I vowing. Um, if you look at uh, for example, like the book of Matthew, chapter 5, and uh, verses 33 through 37, Jesus does give us some instruction as far as you know, should we swear or should we vow like say, I will never do this or I vow to blah blah blah. Um, I think Jesus gives us some really good advice, and so again, Matthew, chapter 5, verse 33 through 37, basically says, um, or Jesus reads, Again, you have heard. That it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And so, basically, what Jesus is saying here is, you know, it's not a good thing to swear and just be like, Oh, I, I swear I will never do this. Or just be like, you know, what, let your yes be yes, your no be no. It's like, okay, I'm not, you know, don't make more of things than they, they need to be. It's just like, you know, will she's, I think you're getting a steal. Um, like, will she ever steal from an old man? That's something she'll never do. Um, you know, she shouldn't have to vow about it, but will it send something into her life by her saying, oh no, I'll, I'll, I'd never steal from an old man. Um, that's not a wrong statement. Um, but it's definitely something she wants to live up to because you're going to be taken accountable for for every word that you do say. And so, um, you know, I don't think she invited anything into her life by saying that, but it's not good to Go around swearing and declaring things um, just because, you know, you should just live an honest life and just be true and honest to yourself and, um, you know, just live up to to the life you, you say you live and, you know, just don't try to make a bigger thing out of, you know, just, you know, a basic truth that you hold uh, true to yourself. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Um, but again, yeah, I don't think (laughs) you you're inviting things from the universe into your life by, by saying something, I think it's okay to say things. And, you know, if, if, um, a test does come up, you know, then so be it. Um, but just make sure that you are, you know, living again, honestly into the word that you've spoken, uh, by yourself. Jay or Wendy, anything else on, on that?
1: Yeah, I think that was a good way of approaching it. It, it, It's, hard to know exactly what robert's getting at there but i mean i suppose if you claim something and you set yourself up then satan might create a situation to really test that Um, i mean i think of the situation for example of um king herod who yeah with salome salome dances said okay that was so wonderful now i'll just i'll grant you anything you want up to half my kingdom and then she came back and said okay um i want the head of john the baptist and he's like, "Oops." <laughs> so sometimes you can probably set yourself up for a situation where then Satan will will be like, "Ah, I'll take advantage of that. I'll see if you, um, and, and I'll put put you to the test." Um, yeah. And in that case, yeah, Herod would rather keep his honor and his word than do what was right and let John the Baptist live
0: yeah exactly and i'm trying to remember there's a story too in the old testament where there is a man who's like you know i'm he was so grateful for something he's like whatever comes to my yeah. door next i'm going to sacrifice it to the lord and his daughter came to the door and it was like oh what do i do like so i mean you can definitely put your foot in your mouth mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah don't don't do you know don't proclaim things like that just say you know you know, there's things you don't even need to say, you know, unless it's really comes up. If somebody asks you a direct question, like, would you steal from, you know, an older person and your answer should be no, I would never do that. And that's okay. But does that necessarily mean you're going to invite bad things into your life by doing that? Not necessarily, but, um, you know, if a situation like that then appears, uh, you better be ready to, (laughs) to live up to what you said, because you are accountable, um, by every word that you do speak. So, yeah, thank you for for sharing that, Jay. That's a good point.
2: All right, let's get our next question up. So Robert is asking, question, according to the Urban Dictionary, the phrase on my life is a phrase that emphasizes that one is speaking very truthfully or stating a fact in which he truly believes. Literally means that the person would bet his life on the validity of the statement. So what if someone else puts a false statement on his life or on God? Would he die?
1: So, Robert, uh, again, interesting question, a little sim- similar to the one we just spoke about. And it, I agree everything with Tina said earlier about oaths and, you know, we shouldn't be doing oaths, period. Just no need unless you're in court and you got to swear um, before giving testimony. Uh, now, I think I have a really easy framework, though, to answer your question, because your main question was, would you die if you sort of swear an oath and and aren't true to it? But it doesn't have to be complex. You don't even need the oath. Uh, let's just even look at lying in general. Uh, so let's start with John eight forty four. John eight forty four, 44. And it says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. For he was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So when we're lying, who are we really being the son of? And whose image are we of? It's Satan. And and uh, we don't want to be associated with that. And we can look at who's going to make it to heaven. Or is it going to be people who chronically lie and like lying, and that's who they are, that's what makes them up? Um, let's see, twenty one eight. Says, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abomin- abominable, murderers, sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So if, if we are people who just chronically lie, we don't think anything of it. We just do it all the time. We don't, we're not trying to live in truth and Be truth and speak it, there's not going to be a place for us in heaven. Like we're we're marching our way to the lake of fire to the second death. And this shouldn't be a surprise. Exodus 20, verse 16, it says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you know, some people could say, Well, this is really talking about the testimony, like I mentioned earlier. But the law is Trying to teach us greater principles. And Jesus showed, you know, let's step back. Let's see something even the bigger picture here. And Paul really makes it clear uh, in Romans. Romans 10, verse 4 it says, Christ is the culmination of the law. I'm reading from NIV because I like how it's worded better here. Christ is the culmination of, not the end of, the culmination of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. Law is about giving life, producing life and sustaining life. It's the only way that people can live harmoniously amongst each other. And when we follow the law for ourselves and for other people, we're going to live better, be happier, have better relationships. I mean, nothing makes life worse than having a relationship destroyed. Just think of the pain, the heartache and what that does. Sucks, we we have that saying right? It sucks the life out of you. So we look at uh, Jesus, who says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." We see truth and life connected together, and Christ is the embodiment of both those things. Whereas Satan, right? He's a murderer and he's a liar. I mean, death and lies go hand in hand. Um, and so we come back to Romans thir- now, chapter thirteen, verse nine. We could do. NKJV for this one. Romans 13 verse 9, Jesus says, for the commandments, or sorry, this is Paul, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, you are all summed up, or these are all summed up by this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, Paul's stepping us back. The big picture is it's love. All the Ten Commandments, are still in effect, but now we're even held to the higher standard. Now that we've seen how Christ has lived, we are called to fulfill the law of love. And this simplifies things. We don't have to have a laundry list of thousands and thousands of things we're supposed to do. We need to just focus on the heart of love. And responding in people in a way that we're caring for their interests, not putting ours first. And and lies are hurtful, they're destructive. And at the core, at, at the core, is sin leads to death. Romans six twenty three: the wages of sin is death, but it's the gift of God that is eternal life. And I'll end with this verse: Romans six sixteen. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? So if you're a person who's struggling with lies and, and lying, ask yourself, who is your master? Who are the one you are obeying? Are you obeying then Satan who is leading you unto death and destruction? Or are you... Trying to follow Christ and be in His image and walk as He walked and speak like He speaks, and thus building relationship of He who is the way, the truth, and the life. So, as the Bible says, "Choose ye this day whom ye shall serve." Tina, any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I think that was really spot on, and I really appreciate you bringing up the verse, like Romans six twenty three, because like in the question, uh, Robert's asking, you know, if he swears falsely, basically on God. Will he die? And Romans 6, 23 is like the wages of sin because lying is a sin is death. But thank God, you know, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So if somebody's sworn falsely, um, is then, um, will they die immediately? And there's no hope they're going to go to hell for sure. Not necessarily, you know, thank God, you know, we do have the opportunity to ask for forgiveness and, you know, first John one nine says, if we confess our sins, um, bless you <laughs> if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so if somebody mm-hmm. has you know sinned and sworn falsely you know does that mean they're lost for sure there's no hope of redemption no um, if we confess our sin you know we we you know truly confess we're truly sorry um God is able to forgive that sin but if we continue in sin and we you know we just you know don't, um, confess, we don't um, repent of those sins, then yeah, we're going to, the wages of sin ultimately is death. And so yes, you will die and you'll die that second death, which, which is from that is no resurrection. The one that Jay mentioned in Revelation 21, eight. So we definitely hope and pray that none of you choose that, that path, we choose
2: a path of truth and life. Amen to that. Amen. And I just wanted to add to that too, that, you know, we oftentimes we, we interpret when we hear the word like the wage of sin is death it can be easy to interpret that as saying like the wage of sin is just immediate complete death right (laughs) like that's how a lot of people often read it but i would argue that that's not really what it's trying to say which is more that when we sin Part, we we are parts of us are dying. We're separating those parts yeah. of us from God.
1: It's actually even more interesting because reader the last verse I talked about, also from Romans, where Paul is talking about whom you serve, you know, that's your master.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The, in that context, the wages of sin is death. It, it's the the wages is this is the payment you're getting when you're working for sin. Satan's mm-hmm. going to pay you back with death. Is kind of yeah. the, the the implication here, and and. Mm-hmm. And Romans also makes it clear. I mean, it's fascinating. I could go on, and on about this, but Satan is the one who's wielding the death uh, that comes from the law. God, God's law says, "Yeah, you sin, you die." That's like how you have to have have it to have society function. Um, but then Satan is the one that's trying to get us all to sin as much as possible. to bring us all to death, mm-hmm. and so every time we sin, Satan's the one who goes, "Good, good, yes," and and because he knows where that's going to lead. And it's God who's actively trying mm-hmm. to get us to repent, to turn. And the essence of repentance is turning away from. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. not just this, God, please forgive me. And then you do it again. Um, yes, God will keep forgiving. But it's it's this concept of, you know, you're going down one path that's the wrong way. And then we realize it, we feel bad for what we've done. We turn around and then keep doing our best to go marching mm-hmm. forward. And yes, Roman talks about it could be difficult, you know, and, and you're, you're going to reach situations where your flesh wants to do one thing, your mind, you know, your, your spirit wants to do another, and you you will have time to struggle. But going through that struggle, at least you're doing it. You're fighting for it. You're trying. You're wanting to be with God. And, and that's what God wants us to be in this state of, you know, well, he doesn't want us always being be in that state of struggle, but, you know, at least resisting. And, and, you know, Tina, you love the verse, right? You know, if we... Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Like, yes. Mm-hmm. It's and warfare. I can't think out
0: of my head, but yes, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, and that, and I think that's such a great point because exactly like we, and the point is to overcome, like Jesus says seven times in the book of Revelation, um, if you read in chapters two and three, talking about the seven churches, he says to him that overcomes, will I grant, you know, right to the tree of life to him that overcomes, will I give, you know, give right to sit in my throne, you know, as I sit in my, you know, as the father has given um me right to sit in the throne. So, I mean, Jesus emphasizes he that overcomes, we have to overcome. And yes, it will be a struggle. Um, But there's a verse I love so much. And it's in the book of Proverbs. And I again, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it basically says a just man falls seven times and gets up again. So as long as you keep getting up, you keep trying, eventually by God's grace, you will overcome, but you and, have- And to-
1: that's his grace. His grace is that he keeps forgiving us. And in his grace is he will help us in the struggle. He will help us overcome. He will help give us that willpower to, to will and to do his good pleasure. Like it's, exactly. th- this is why Christianity is such an amazing religion. Like it, it to me, mm-hmm. it is divine. Like there's no way a human could ever come up with it.
0: No, definitely. Amen. So I was just thinking of a verse too that I love. And it's in Titus um, chapter two. I'll just read the really quick of it is Okay. Um, Titus chapter two, because a lot of people say grace. Well, of course, God's grace. So That means I can keep sinning. And that, that's fine because God gives me grace. But no, God's grace actually gives you power to overcome sin. Exactly. And you see this in Titus chapter two. Even better. 11. Yes. <laughs> Even, Even be- more exactly. Uh, Titus two. <laughs> exactly. Titus two verses um, chapter two. Chapter two, verses 11 through 13 says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and savior, Jesus Christ. So again, it mm-hmm. is God's grace that helps us to overcome and live godly, righteously in our present world right here, right now. So yeah, by all means, you know, and that- <laughs> if you've sinned or someone sinned, you can overcome by his grace.
2: Yeah, and that is what is best for our health and well-being. I mean, Amen. I don't know if you, if you have ever, you know, talked to someone who who has admitted how stuck in sin they are and how they keep repeating these things and they can't overcome it and how physically sick it they become with that battle. It's it's profound. And that, you know, that is the death i believe that the bible speaks of that the wages of sin is death they they they're they're alive but they're dying because it's of different. that sin and you know when they are able to overcome it their health their life restores and gets better so amen all right shall we get our next question up All right, so Bennett is asking, there are only 8 billion people on the planet 2022. How do you come up with 39 billion people entering New Jerusalem? This site has been deceiving and incorrect at best. All right, Bennett, thank you for your
0: question. And I think that's interesting because you are reading our questions on our website. So if you go to um, BibleAsk.org, there's a question called Can the New Jerusalem Fit All the People from All Ages? So first of all, I want you to understand the context of this question and what we're actually saying in our answer. So um, let's just clarify, Um, again, if you go to bibleask.org, which is our website, we have thousands of Bible questions and answers. So if you are looking for um, more answers to your questions, go to our website, bibleask.org, and you can type in questions. We have thousands, again, of answers to many, many, many Bible questions, and not only in English, but in many other languages like French, Spanish, Arabic, Hindi, and we are expanding, thank God. So um, again, this is the question: Can the Can the New Jerusalem fit all the people from all ages? So the question is simply: You know, is New Jerusalem even big enough to fit all the people that could be saved ever? And so um, we're just talking about. This is a math question. This is not a. We're giving. A number of people that are going to be saved. That's not what we're saying at all on the website. So, again, let's go to the question to the answer itself. So, the beginning of this um, answer on BibleAsk.org begins with the um, verse in Revelation chapter 21, verse 16 that says, The city, which is the New Jerusalem, lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and the measure of the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. And then the answer goes on to say, the city is perfectly square. Its perimeter is 12,000 furlongs or 1,500 miles. It is 375 miles long on each side. The scriptures teach that the height is equal to the width, which means the city will extend upward in the skies with very high rising structures. So just talking as a math question, it says, if the new Jerusalem were to be crowded and each saved person given only a hundred square feet of ground space. So we're just saying, hypothetically, we are not saying this is how many people are going to be in heaven. We're saying, just saying, it because the question is, can Jerus- new Jerusalem even fit all the people from all ages? Because there've been people saying like, Hey, Jerusalem has these, you know, Um, limitations based on what I read in Revelation 21, is that even big enough to hold everybody that could be saved? And so, again, our answer is simply, if each saved person was only given 100 square feet of ground space, which is enough to live in, there would be room for 39 billion people in the city, which is many times longer than the present population of the world. Yes, we know the population of the world is only about... You know, eight billion at this time. We understand that. (laughs) We we've read atlases. We we know the population of the world. We're just simply saying that even if you know the the Jerusalem, everybody who was in there only got 100 square feet. It could hold up to 39 billion. So yes, is the New Jerusalem able to hold everybody from all ages? Yes, the answer is yes. God knew what He was doing. He knows how many people can will be able to fit in the New Jerusalem, and we're simply saying that you know, mathematically, <laughs> the New Jerusalem. If you know, if every person was given a hundred square feet of space, there would be enough room for thirty-nine billion. We're not saying that so many people are being going to be saved. We have no idea. Uh, you know, as far as a number, and um, you know, the Bible says, you know, there's multitudes. Um, there's, you know, that can't be numbered with the C there in the book of revelation. So again, we, <laughs> we're not saying that, um, 39 billion people will be in the New Jerusalem. That's not what our website is saying at all. Please understand the context of which you're reading. So no, we're not trying to be deceitful or in, in any, in any way, shape or form. We simply want to just show you the Bible and sh- answer a question based on what the Bible is saying. Um, and so, Yeah. Uh, to continue on with the answer, it says, however, scripture makes it clear that only a few will be saved. So, you know, even if there are room for 39 billion, you know, the Bible says, you know, in Matthew 7, 14, which is one of my favorite verses, you know, narrow is the gate and straight is the way that leads to life and few there be that find it. Um, and again, in Revelation 21:16, this is a description of the city, but the scripture also teaches that believers will have homes outside the city and populate the whole earth. Um, which uh, in the city that there will be no oceans in the new earth. And we see that in Revelation 21, verse one. It says they shall build houses and inhabit them. That's in Isaiah chapter 65, 21 and 22. Um, And in Jesus also talks about um, how the righteous will build homes in the new earth. And Christ has prepared, um, you know, addition to the mansions that Christ has prepared in the city, which again is John 14 1 through3. so you know we don't know how many people um, will be in heaven we're not claiming that by any means we're simply saying you know answering the question can the New Jerusalem fit all the people from all ages And the answer is yes just based on this mathematical <laughs> equation of you know measuring the size of the city which the Bible gives us those measurements in Revelation 2116 and just doing some calculations so, we're just saying it could hold a lot of people, up, you know. And even if, anyways. So yeah, no, that's not a um, <laughs> that's not an exact statement. It's just saying that if every person was given 100 square feet, it could hold 39 billion. So I hope that clarifies it for you. And I hope that you know you. Can, I'm glad that you're reading our answers. I hope you continue to read and and learn um, more about God's word and and hopefully we we get an understanding and we can all learn together. Jay or Wendy, anything else?
1: Nope, i so tempted to go into deeper things because it, it reaches <laughs> really interesting stuff, but <laughs> the show must go on.
0: The show must go on, yes. We only have about five more minutes, so we want to answer as many questions as we can. Um,
2: All right, well, let's get our next question up. So Cap is asking, what two specific questions did David ask of the Lord following Saul's death?
1: I, I'm just... I wish I could ask Cap what prompted this question. <laughs> I wonder if it's like from a homework assignment. Um, but uh, just a little context first. If, uh, in 1 Samuel 31, we see the death of Saul. For example, verse 11 says, Now when the inhabitants of, of Jobesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and traveled at night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth and they came to Jabath and burned them there. So Paul dies in 1 Samuel 31. We go to 2 Samuel 1. Uh, So we're starting now the the second book of Samuel, first chapter, first words. It says, now came to Beth after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. And David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David. And then we proceed to find out that this man reveals to David that Saul was dead. And he claims that he was the one that killed Saul. And and then David orders that guy to be killed. And then uh, David gives a lamentation to Saul. Now we come to 2 Samuel 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, and it reads, It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord. So finally, we come to David asking questions. And he, and he inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities in Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So question number one is, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And God said, basically, yes. Then David asked the second question. Where shall I go? Or, yeah, where shall I go up? And he, referring to God, said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam and the, so sorry, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitis, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. So there you have it. Question number one was, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And then the second question was, where shall I go up? And you got to give David credit because compared to a lot of people in the Bible, David is one of those few people who consistently, not, not every time, but pretty consistently throughout, he's always asking God, God, what should I do? What do you want me to do? And this is a man who's, you know, we're told is, has a heart after God. And he definitely gives us a good example of always before we take a major action, we should consult with God first. So I, I appreciate that of David. I'm glad the Bible records these things. So thank you for for asking.
2: Anything else, Tina? <laughs> I was like, I thought
0: you were going to say something. <laughs> you got all sneaky on the microphone. <laughs> um, no, I think that's really good. Um, praise the Lord. And yeah, I, I love any question about David. David's one of my favorite characters. and
1: um, I'll have funny. to keep that in mind next time.
0: No, no, no. It's it's all yours. (laughs) It's okay. It's all good. Um, I see we have about a minute, a little less than two minutes today. So I think we're going to close tonight because we're going to end on time for once. So um, let's go ahead and close here for tonight. I know we do have a few more questions, but we do want to welcome everybody that if you do have questions and you want them featured on our live show, please be sure to go to our website, bibleask.org forward slash live, and you can submit your questions for our weekly show um, and your, your question will be featured by one of us. We're very happy to answer um, all of the questions we get. And just remind everybody, if you like what you're seeing, um, be sure to like and share our content. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. And we just want to remind everybody um, that, you know, it really helps our ministry just to get the gospel out there um, by liking and sharing our content. We really do appreciate that from all of our Bible Ask family out there. Um, and it's because of you, this is why we do what we do because we just want to share the gospel with you and with all the world. And, um, we want to wrap this up. We want to go home. So, uh, that's Amen. the great commission that we want to, um, you know, spread the gospel to every kindred tongue and nation for witness to all nations so that the end will come. We want Jesus to come very soon. And so we need to, um, you know, just share God's word. And so we just ask you to do your part by just sharing, um, what you can to, to those around you in your circle of influence and. Um, just be a blessing if this has been a blessing to you. So uh, with that, we'll go ahead and close with a quick word of prayer. And again, I'll just remind everybody that we are a live weekly show. So um, we start every Friday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So we hope to see you again next week at um, our weekly time, again, 6 p.m. on Fridays at Pacific Standard Time. So we hope to see you again next week. And Jay or Wendy, you want to close us out with a quick word of prayer?
2: Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to share your word with people and to share your love with people. Um, we thank you for your word and the wisdom that you give us through it, the insights that you give us through it. And um, I really want to thank you, Lord, also for just Jay and Tina and the work that they put into this each week for um to get to the heart of these questions and find these answers for people and and share it. And uh, we pray that you will be with each of our viewers and um, draw us all near to you, Lord. Help us to know your love better each and every day. And uh, be with us this weekend and in the week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. God is good. To Him be the glory. (laughs) Amen. All right, everybody, we hope to see you again next week at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. God bless you and have a great night. Bye.
1: Bye.